1: faith talk tampa online at letstalkfaith.com download the faith talk tampa app
0: following is sponsored by verse by verse ministries and is pre-recorded
1: This is not the time to be confused about issues relating to salvation, repentance, man's lostness, the sufficiency of, of Christ's death, and those other things that go along with it. This is not the time to be confused. This is the time to be crystal clear, because when you're crystal clear about that, you're going to be sharing the gospel with others.
2: Almost every time I hear someone talk about salvation, it sounds rather fuzzy and vague. I think we tend to make it that way, either because we are vague in our own understanding or because we don't want to sound harsh. If we cannot or do not clearly communicate the gospel, though, we hinder it. If we do not live lives that demonstrate the transforming power of Christ, we hinder the gospel. Now, each of us is individually responsible for whether we accept or reject Christ, but I for sure do not want to be the excuse someone uses for rejecting Him. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we continue our series from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about hindrances to the gospel. I was once in a position that forced me into an association with a church leader who was possibly the greediest, most manipulative, and power-hungry bully I've ever known. Many people told me that if he was a Christian, they wanted nothing to do with Christianity. It is unwise to judge a belief system by those who abuse it. But at the same time, we want to do all we can to not be the ones giving people the wrong impression of our faith. Let's open our Bibles, if you're not driving, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's Pastor Steve.
1: Well, some years ago, the newspaper in Toronto, the Toronto Sun, ran an article in which they highlighted some excuses given by people who had been involved in traffic accidents Here's how some of the reports read as uh, these individuals try to clear their records with these incredible excuses. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. It's not my fault, pedestrian. A guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. Obviously dazzled by her charm and beauty. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my vehicle, and vanished. I like this one. pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran over him. (laughs) I sort of helped him out. Not my fault. And then here's one. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. It's not my fault, it's the telephone pole's fault. You know, people can come up with all kinds of zany excuses for not taking responsibility for their actions. In our society, we call it passing the buck, or uh, blame shifting, or justifying our behavior. People have all kinds of excuses for lots of things, but especially do they have excuses for not becoming a Christian. And one of the more popular excuses for not becoming a Christian is the lack of consistency and exemplary behavior in the lives of those who claim to know Christ, especially ministers and spiritual leaders. We're called hypocrites, we're called uh, self-righteous people, we're called all kinds of names as they look at us and see some inconsistencies. Well, the Apostle Paul was very conscious of the fact that people were constantly looking at his life and trying to find some inconsistency between the gospel he preached and the life that he lived. So he addressed this issue directly in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. I'd like you to turn your Bibles there as we continue our ongoing study of this wonderful, wonderful letter, always challenging, Always meaningful, always dealing with our hearts and actions. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, though we'll not finish the whole portion this, uh, this week, I do want you to be, uh, see, see it in context and see the whole section. Starting at verse 3, Paul says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live; as punished, yet not put to death; as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing; as poor, yet making many rich; as having nothing, yet possessing all things. These verses have been called Paul's apostolic identification card because they reveal qualities about Paul that prove that he was a true and genuine apostle. But I want you to understand something: Paul wasn't concerned that he be recognized an apostle for his sake. He was concerned that others would recognize him as a true apostle, an ambassador of Christ, a representative of our Lord's for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, not for his sake. See, Paul opened chapter six with one basic purpose in mind. And if you can get this, you'll sort of understand the the flow of this passage having taught in chapter 5 that God called him to be a minister of reconciliation, to be an ambassador for Christ, which essentially means that his ministry was to tell people about the gospel, about salvation. Now as he enters chapter 6, he's still emphasizing the gospel, the message, only he's uh, he's taking it from another angle. His emphasis now is that believers in Christ are to make sure that we in no way hinder the spread of this gospel. God calls him, as he tells us in chapter five, to preach this gospel and all of us, for that matter, to proclaim it. But in chapter six, he wants to make sure that this gospel message is not hindered in any way by us. Now, how could we hinder the gospel? That's what chapter six is about, at least the passage that we read in the few verses before. Paul presents two ways that the gospel can be hindered. We looked at the first way the last time we studied 2 Corinthians, and that is this. The gospel is hindered when God's people fail to appreciate the grace of God. He said in verse 1, "...and working together with him," meaning we are co-laborers with God, we are his fellow workers, "...we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain." as believers in Christ, Paul warned the Corinthians not to falter in their Christian lives. This is a warning here. Though these Corinthians had become Christians, they were not living with the kind of zeal and and commitment to Christ that they should have had. Why? Because unlike Paul, the Corinthians did not really appreciate God's grace. That's what he means when he said, We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't live in such a way that God's grace is not able to produce its intended results in your life. And what are those results? A commitment to Christ, a diligence, a service for him. Paul lived like that. Paul explains why he lived like that. Remember, as we go back to chapter 5, verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, meaning if our behavior looks insane, if it looks irrational to you, understand that we're doing it for God. Now, why, how do you get this kind of, this zeal, this, this commitment, this diligence? He explains in verse 14, for the love of Christ, meaning Christ's love for him, Christ's love for us, for the love of Christ controls us, meaning it compels us, it pressures us, it motivates us. How? Why? Because Paul said, having concluded this, this is what made him so zealous. He understood this, that one, meaning Christ, died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul said, when I understood the grace of God, When I understood that Christ's death alone was sufficient for my salvation, not my good works, not my human effort, not my religious deeds. When I understood the grace of God, I realized that I had to live for Christ. If he died for me, I must live for him. Now, the Corinthians, obviously, though saved, did not appreciate the grace of God like Paul did. Why? Because, as we said, false teachers had come into this church and they had taught a type of works salvation, from what we can put together the, the rest of the book, these were uh, Jewish people from Jerusalem claiming to be apostles. Paul will call them false apostles. And uh, they said, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You must also do works of the law. And so what had happened was these Corinthians, though saved, uh, embraced that, at least were confused about it, to the point where it undermined their confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's death for their salvation. And as a result of that, their passion and their devotion to the Lord was dimmed. He'll say, for example, in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, that I, I fear that as Satan deceived Eve, so you're being deceived and moved away from the simple devotion. That Christ wants. So they even thought that Paul, Paul's zeal was irrational when, when Paul's zeal was the norm. When you appreciate the grace of God, you are instructed by that grace to live for Christ. So that's what he's talking about. And because they had a lack of devotion to Christ, it meant a lack of service for him. And a lack of service for him meant that they were not sharing the gospel, the, the message of salvation with others like they should have been. And that's why Paul states in verse 2, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What does he mean by that? He's quoting from Isaiah 49, 8. And his point is this, to say that there was a specific time in the Old Testament era when God was restoring, saving the Jewish people from the exile. So today, in this age, we call the church age, this is the specific period of time in which God is saving people with a very clear message of salvation. In other words, this is the time to be clear about the grace of God so you can be actively engaged and involved in evangelism. This is not the time to be confused about issues relating to salvation, repentance, a man's lostness, the sufficiency of of Christ's death, and those other things that go along with it. This is not the time to be confused. This is the time to be crystal clear, because when you're crystal clear about that, you're going to be sharing the gospel with others. So the first way that the gospel can be hindered is, is, as we said, when God's people fail to appreciate the grace of God. You need to make sure that you appreciate God's grace. You need to make sure that you're solid on that. You need to make sure that you understand that what Christ has done for you alone. That's it. That's the gospel. Christ's death for us. Because when that happens, you'll serve him. You'll serve him with a diligence. But there is a second way that we can hinder the spread of the gospel. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. The gospel can also be hindered when God's servant discredits the gospel with his lifestyle. First, when, when God's people don't appreciate the grace of God. But secondly, when God's servant, those who are especially called to leadership, discredit the gospel with their lifestyle. He says in verse three, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. You see, Paul has, has shifted now. He's moved the spotlight from the Corinthians hindering the gospel by a lack of appreciation for the grace of God. He now turns that spotlight on himself and every church leader. And he states that he's careful to live in such a way that the gospel is not hindered by his life bringing reproach upon the ministry. See, Paul understood that a godly example in a church leader's life is one of the most powerful advertisements for the gospel. It, It is critical. People often evaluate the message of Christ by the lifestyle of the messengers of Christ. Whether we like it or not, that is reality. In other words, ambassadors for Christ represent the Lord, not only in the message that we preach, but in the life that we live. There needs to be consistency. We need to live up to the standards of what we tell others to do. We can't separate our message from our lives. It's the old saying, we have to practice what we preach. But I want you to know, though, Paul is specifically talking about church leaders here. It applies to every one of us who who takes the name of Christ because we're all involved in the ministry of reconciliation. So you and I are are to be examples of what it means to be a Christian. That's why the Bible places such high standards, not only for all of us, but especially for church leaders. I'd like you to see this. First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three lists the qualifications for an elder. An elder is synonymous in the Bible with a pastor. An elder is not an executive who meets with a board of men. He's a pastor. It's he's a pastor. He's a shepherd. He's an elder. He's an overseer. He's a bishop. All of those names speak of the the same office. And uh, Paul sent Timothy, actually left Timothy in Ephesus, which is what First Timothy, the background is there, in order to set things in order, to straighten out things. What do you need to straighten out? The leadership, the elders, they were messed up in doctrine, messed up in behavior. And so in chapter three, he gives a list of the qualifications for a leader. He says in verse one, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. So if a man comes along and says, uh, I've been an elder in a church up north, and I'd like to serve uh, at Lakeside as an elder, that's a fine work he desires to do. That's a wonderful desire to, to do that. But is he qualified? Anybody can desire to do that. Anybody can say for a host of reasons they want to be in leadership, but is the man qualified? Well, how would you know? Well, beginning at verse two, Paul lists the qualifications. And I I really believe to correctly interpret this, there is one qualification and then there are categories that you fit that qualification into. What I mean by that, he says in verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach. I think that's the one qualification. That means he's blameless, doesn't mean he's sinless, but it does mean that there is not a glaring area of sin in his life in which he's a bad example to the church and to the world in. That, that's what it means. It means he deals with his sin. There's not, there's nothing that stands out that when people look at that elder, they go, and he's an elder? That's a joke. That's what Paul's talking about. And then he lists the various areas of life that a man must be above reproach in. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be temperate. He must be prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the house of God? What he means by that is if he can't take care of the three or four children in his own home, how's he going to take care of the three or 400 at church? And verse six says, and not a new convert so that he'll not become conceited not become lifted with pride, he's talking about, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must uh, have a good reputation with those outside the church. So unbelievers must know that he's a man of integrity so that he'll not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Paul is talking here about the highest of standards, and we dare not lower these standards. Leaders are not chosen in a church based on uh, their clout in the community, how long they've been in a church, their financial picture, they are chosen based on two things. Do they have a desire to serve and are they qualified? All of these are character qualities apart from being able to teach. That's, that's a giftedness that, that God gives. Very important for us to understand. There are the highest of standards because leaders set the example. But it's not just for elders, because I can imagine many of you saying, I'm glad I'm not an elder. I don't have to live up to that. Paul goes on in verse eight to speak about deacons. And then he speaks in verse 11. It says women, uh, I interpret that to mean the female deacons. And he mentions that these people are also to have the highest of standards. Now, lest you think, well, that eliminates me because I'm not an official deacon. I'm not an official deaconess. Let me tell you this. Though we have and we believe that there are official people chosen to be deacons and deaconesses, Anyone who serves in any official capacity in the church is really a deacon or a deaconess. It means simply that you are a servant of the church. If you are, for example, a Sunday school teacher, you ought to be qualified to be a deacon or a deaconess. If you're an usher in our church, you ought to be qualified to be a, a deacon or a deaconess. If you're on any committee, missions, finance, building committee, you are official representatives of our church. In the church and in the community, if you're a musician, a choir member, an Awana helper, an able worker, ladies, Bible study leader, all staff, any ministry leader ought to fit these qualifications because you have been asked to officially represent this church. That's that's the spirit of this. And he says in verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience—that means that he that he obeys the word of God. His conscience or her conscience is clear. These men also must first be tested, and let them serve as deacon. It doesn't mean that you take them in a room and give them a test. What this means is that over time uh, you observe them and you see how they handle the issues of life. They, you don't you don't promote somebody to be a deacon because they've been faithful to your church for two weeks. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be, and I think he's talking about the the women who serve in this area, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons, then he goes back to the men, must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus his point being that anybody who serves in any leadership capacity in the church is to model exemplary christian behavior for the church to follow as well as the world to observe and i didn't go into the various uh the various areas that these uh, that we need to be above reproach and we have messages on that and and all kinds of material but i just wanted you to see the big picture that leadership requires godliness exemplary behavior now paul Understood this. And he also understood, and we need to balance this with other scriptures. He understood that God is the one in his sovereignty who draws people to himself. It's not based on, on our godliness. It's not based on our conduct. Paul also understood that the success of the gospel is not dependent upon the persuasiveness of the preacher or the attractiveness of his life. We understand that. We understand God is sovereign. We understand that he works sometimes in spite of our, of us. However, Paul was acutely aware of the fact that an inappropriate lifestyle on the part of a Christian, especially a church leader, could and would discredit the gospel in the eyes of an observing world. And that's that's his point in verse 3. And So Paul was very careful not to give anybody an excuse to reject his message because of the way he lived. Now, it's very interesting the way he put it in verse 3. Let's look more closely at verse 3. He says, Giving no cause for offense in anything. The thought behind this concept of offense or offending someone is to cause them to stumble in, in the sense of putting an obstacle in their way, the obstacle being our own lives, hindering them, tripping them up. In other words, Paul wanted to make sure there wasn't anything in his life that would be an obstacle or a hindrance to someone coming to faith in Christ. He, he reiterated this in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said that he beat his body. He, he brought it under subjection. Otherwise, he feared that he would be put on the shelf, that God wouldn't use him anymore. That's the same thought here. Paul had a, a conscious and a, and a holy and a wholesome fear of being disqualified from ministry. Now that ought to be our perspective too, not just the apostle Paul's. We ought to have and we ought ought to examine our lives to make sure that there's nothing in our life, your life, and my life that would hinder someone from considering Christ.
2: People are always watching us, and there are many ways we can offend people as Christians. Sometimes they take offense at our obedience to Christ, and that's to be expected. But let's live in such a way that we give no other offense. As the Apostle Peter said, make sure that if you suffer, you suffer for being a Christian and not for any sinful behavior. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. I'm glad you joined us today as Pastor Steve Kreloff teaches from 2 Corinthians 6 about hindrances to the gospel. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're looking for a church home in or near Clearwater, I'm sure you'll find a warm welcome at Lakeside. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. Call the office for service times and other information. The number is 727-441-1714. Or you can go online to lakesidechapel.com. The phone number again is 727-441-1714. To find out more about Verse by Verse or to listen to any of our previous broadcasts, visit the website versebyverseradio.org. We keep all of our broadcasts on the Message Archive page, available to you at no charge. But if you've been blessed by Verse by Verse and would like to participate in funding these radio Bible classes, click the link to the giving page, and you can give online securely and easily. If you're already supporting Verse by Verse, please know that we are grateful for your encouragement. The web address once more is versebyverseradio.org. There's one more thing I'd like to tell you about while I have the chance, and this is especially for our visually impaired listeners. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and want a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit www.blindbibles.com. That's 800-838-5924 or blindbibles.com. I'm Jerry Peterson. Remember at the start of today's program when I mentioned the church leader who set such a bad example that people rejected Christ because of his behavior? 1 Timothy 3 describes some characteristics that must be visible in the life of a church leader. This man lacked several of those traits. Next time on Verse by Verse